Okay, this morning I'm going to read from uh, several different scriptures and, and then we'll see what God has for us. This, I'm going to read first from Isaiah, the sixth chapter, and I'll read that. And I want us to see, as God would have us all see together as one, in Isaiah 6, verse 1, and I'm going to read, start in verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, he said, I saw the Lord, I, I saw also the Lord. So there was an also. Again, we've shared this before, but Isaiah was a godly king and he reigned for 52 years. Can you imagine having a godly king for 52 years? And Isaiah was a great patriot and he had a great love for his nation, Israel, and for uh, obviously, and that was, uh, had to do with the things of God. But it says here, and when we study this, and it's isagogics and it's historical frame of reference. We're going to see that, we see here that he was really overwhelmed to such a point. He was so overwhelmed with the death of Isaiah. But then that's when he said, I saw also the Lord and he was sitting upon a throne. That brings out a beautiful truth this morning that no matter what, that God is ruling and reigning. He is above our thoughts that aren't his. He is above our feelings. He is above everything. He's above, above every single pain and every single suffering that we go through. And he, not only is he above it, but he goes through it with us. So he is saying, again, the Holy Spirit is writing, in the year that King Isaiah died, he said, I saw also the Lord and he was sitting upon a throne and he was high and lifted up above everything. And his train, his, his glory, his, his, his person and his nature and his attributes were filling the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. He's getting a picture of these unfallen angels in the very presence of God. They had six wings, and it says, in two he covered his face, and this reveals that in the presence of their creator, <laughs> two are their two wings are covering their face. And even here, we have to understand that in John 1 and verse 15, 18, in John chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, and states very clearly that no, it doesn't say that no man has ever seen God in all his fullness. It says no created being has ever seen God in all his fullness. They, it, this is just a manifestation of their creator, but they still couldn't see him in all his fullness simply because he inhabits eternity in Isaiah 57 and verse 15. He inhabits it. And he is eternal life itself in 1 John 5, verse 11, and John 17, and verses 2 and 3. So all he's seeing is a manifestation, yet that manifestation enough is to cause these unfallen angels in the presence of this measure of glory to cover their eyes. It's so holy and so pure. With two, they covered their face. And then it says, with two, they covered their feet. And this speaks of intense humility in his presence. 
And with two, it says they did fly, and that speaks of hearing the word and instantly obeying it, instantly. And then it says, and one cried to another in this antiphonal angelic worship, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the hosts is describing who they are of all the angels. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And of course, this has to do with sacrifice, the, the sacrifice of Christ himself. Verse 5, it says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Meaning, in the Hebrew, he says, I am literally cut off. His presence is so holy that I am cut off. I am cut off. Why? The cause is, is that I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, and listen here, we're going to focus on the word eyes. My, my eyes have seen the king. He is the Lord of hosts. Notice, no angelic being was making him Lord. <laughs> he is Lord. The Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, unto Isaiah, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. The altar here is the type, the symbol, the shadow of the cross itself, where Christ would obviously fulfill the types here and would go there and to be crucified. He had a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. In this sense, it was so holy and so pure. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. And that's what the cross has done for all of us in Christ. Your iniquity, that iniquity that first was found in Satan in Ezekiel 28 and verse 15, which was transferred through a lack of a will being submitted. One was deceived, and that would be Eve in Genesis 3, 1 to 6, and then Adam would transgress. He would know better, but he would step over the line anyways. But your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Now, who will I send? And who will go for us? And then said I, Here am I, send me. See? He's purified. He's been purified by a work that was completely outside of himself. And now, because of that work, I'm purified. And we're pure in Christ to the pure in Titus 1 and verse 15. All things are pure. We see things clearly. And we're going to bring this out as God would bring it out to us this morning. How that we can only see sin clearly in his presence. And only see who we are in Christ in his presence. See, those two things, again... We can only see sin in his presence, rightfully. Doesn't mean we can sin in his presence, but it's the only place where we can truly measure it because he was the only one that did. And that was the cross that brought out the measure of that sin, but also a love that operated through the unbelievable grace that he had given us and that he has given us. And so he said, go. What are you to go? I want you to tell this people, and this is the message that I, that that, that Christ, through the, that God who had given His Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
was telling Isaiah as a prophet to go to tell this people. Who were this people and what was the message? Hear you, indeed. I want you to hear. Behold me, is really what it's saying. I want them to behold me in this purity of the message in you, Isaiah. I want you to go tell them and to hear me, indeed, behold me, but understand not. And see, indeed, to see me, but perceive not. Perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their eyes, their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes. Notice their eyes. And hear with their ears and understand with their heart and and convert and be healed. Now, obviously, would God give his message to someone knowing that they, through his grace, the operation of his grace, they would actually receive him? Would he shut them off? And that's not what these verses are saying. It's, he's speaking to a people whose will would not be nor ever would be submitted to him. And that's why we can even understand how those, when they operate in, in under, under the, the man of sin, the, the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 4 to 12, where it says he'll send strong delusion that they'll believe a lie, meaning that their will would not be changed. They would see, but they would still refuse. They would hear and know it, but they would still refuse it. They would still do so. Now, here is, we'll also read from Matthew, the 13th chapter. And this is the parable of the seeds. Again, this has to do with seeing and hearing. This is Matthew 13. And in Matthew 13, in verse 10 it says, And the disciples came and said unto him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why do you speak to them in parables? And Christ answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Those that were still that he was still dealing with the Jews at this particular time. It's, it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Why is it not given? Because they refused to see and they would refuse to hear. And both those things, they would refuse to do that. Their will would not change. And of course, his will in Second Peter 3 and verse 9 the will of Christ, the will of the Father, one with them, but the Holy Spirit proceeding from both as one would always convict them, but at some point then the conviction stops because the will will never be involved. But he's still, his will is still willing that they should not perish his will. So in Matthew 13, as we continue here, it says for, in verse 12, for whosoever has to him, whosoever does have to him will be given more. And he will have more abundance. Remember in John 10, 10, A, the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but Christ said, I've come that they might have life and that life more in more abundance. But whosoever has not from him will be taken away, even that that he has or that he seems to have but doesn't have it. Why? Because it's declarative knowledge, but it's never been experiential because the will hasn't been submitted. 
Verse 13, therefore, he said, speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not. And hearing hear not, neither do they understand, because they refuse to do so. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which we just read, saying, by hearing you will hear and will not understand, meaning you will refuse it, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For this people's heart is wax gross, thick, stubborn. First Samuel 15 and verse 23, uh, witchcraft, uh, rebellion is as witchcraft, stubbornness is as idolatry, and that's what it means, wax gross. And their ears are what? Dull of hearing. Their eyes, what? They have closed. You see why? And this has to do with the will. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes. The mystery of iniquity. Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 7. The mystery of it. And hear with their ears and should understand with their mind. And should be converted. And I should heal them. And this is what he says to us in Christ. And he was saying that to his disciples at that time. How much more is he saying it to us in verse 16? But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see, the things that we have the opportunity each morning and some nights to come and hear. And that's why it's so very important that when we do come, it is so necessary for us to be able to hear and to concentrate. It's so very, very necessary to do so. Because I am telling you, in love, in love, the enemy will use anything and every distraction that he can to get us away from receiving what's coming from God's counsel. There's no fault, there's no blame in this because the enemy will even use anything he can. Anything he can. And that's why it's so important that even before we come to hear the word of God, we come already disciplined and prepared. And that means everything about it. Everything about it. We are already prepared because we realize it's such a sacred time to come in these very last days to have the word and to be able to function in God and the perfection and completion of God's order and his counsel as it flows towards us. It's so very necessary. And the enemy will use anything. You see, in Proverbs 24 and verse 9, even the thought of foolishness is sin. Any kind of foolishness. And it doesn't mean that the enemy can use anyone that we even love and esteem highly. He will use them. He can do it to any of us. And it's a distraction. And it's a distraction to cause distance between Christ and us. Even at that very moment when the word is coming forth is the intensity of his desire for intimacy for us in each of us as individuals. And that's when the enemy comes in. Listen to me. He'll use anything. Honestly. And that's why in his love without irritation, there's no irritation in grace. Without suspicion, there's no suspicion in love. And that's why we as adults have to take control, even over those that don't have control of themselves, to protect them. And this is part of preparation. And this all has to do with God's order. 
when we come together as a local assembly because it's a very sacred time. It is extremely sacred. And what cost us to have that time of sacredness is the cross. And we're going to see this morning how it's only the cross that can measure sin and measure the love of Christ, the love of God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, in, and again, in Matthew 13, 16, but separated from all those that don't receive it, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears they hear. For truly I say unto you that many prophets, many, many prophets, these Old Testament prophets, desire to see the things which you see and haven't seen, but they still believe. 1 Peter 1a, for us too, and whom have we, we haven't seen, by the way. In 1 Peter 1a, we love, because we've seen and heard him. We've seen him. And that's why we'll get into these other scriptures to have a full understanding of that. They desire to see the things which you see and haven't seen, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. Not fully like us. Hear you therefore the parable of the sower. Then he goes in to all of those and he, and he brings in the parable by using a seed and by using particular ground where that seed would enter or where it would not enter. And what would, what would be the hindrance or the distraction to cause the distance. You see, the enemy will use any distraction. It doesn't matter, he'll use it. And that's why we have to be so prepared. We do, because we will miss so much. We'll miss things from the foolishness of sins that come in, that can come into a fellowship. When there's, in, there's been intensity of the counsel of the word of God, this intensity, which, which, which we should be discussing and being overwhelmed with, and then the thought of foolishness is brought in. And then it becomes, in Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 1, a fly begins to enter into the ointment. And it does away. Listen, that potential is in any of us. It's in any of us. Because we have the flesh that's in us, in Romans 8 verse 9, but that we're not of it. Again, we bring out these words in. They're extremely important when you read the word of God. And that word of is extremely important when you read the word of God, and when it's being ministered to us. And so the parable of the seeds. And then finally we'll see, and we'll read to where we are in this dispensation of grace, the church age, of which we are in right now. We have a, such a greater understanding and purity of sight through what we have in Christ as his body, in Ephesians 5.30, his flesh and bones, as his very bride in Revelations 19, uh, uh, 7 and 9, and as his very church in Matthew 16 and verse 18. We have this already. We have those things that they desired. And even when Jesus was speaking to his disciples during the kingdom age, what we have as heavenly people is even far above what he was even giving to them. That's what we have. That's what makes it so sacred of what we have here. And that's why, listen, and the enemy, he wants to distract. Because the word in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, when it is preached, it's received by those who don't receive it as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. 
that's being preached. And then that effectually works in you. But it doesn't have a proper effect when there's foolishness brought in, when there's distractions that are brought in. And this is not a blame game. This all has to do with protection. And that's why we as adults, mature ones, have to be so prepared so that it keeps out the enemy from trying to use guilt, irritation, suspicion, and condemnation and bring all these things into a place where we should be fellowshipping and in enjoying the joy of the Father himself in Romans 5.11. And this, is, this goes into order. It does. It's order. And we, made, we need to make decisions for those to protect them when they can't do it themselves. The Word of God is very pure, and we only have so much time. We only have so much time. And so in Ephesians, the first chapter, and you can read it right up to these verses, and we'll see this. But in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 16, the apostle, through the Holy Spirit, speaking, taking the word through the apostle Paul and speaking to him, and he speaks to us this morning in 116 of Ephesians, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Why? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. How long was the God Lord of Jesus Christ and Lord himself? Before any, any, any host of angels were created or a race of human beings were created. He is the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And you see, this is the counsel that, that God wants to give to us through the preaching of the word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's when the enemy comes in and will use any distraction or to cause distance to get our minds away because you know how we are. We, we, we are so weak and frail, we can be so easily distracted. And God speaks this in the intensity of his love, and there's not an ounce of condemnation in it. And so, to distract from the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Listen, verse 18, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. You may know it in yourself as a reality. And what the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints, you as an individual, and when we come together. That, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? See, the believe there in that verse has to do with 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. The same word that comes through us when it's done being preached is not the opportunity, again, for foolishness to enter in. Because it just takes away from everything. It does. It completely takes it away. And we all need this counsel, every single one of us, and this is God's loving counsel that he's given to us this morning. The exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, who actually receive it. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, us and him. He raised us from the dead, non-participation with the presence of God, that's what death is, being dead. It's a non-participation with the presence of God. That's why foolishness has to go. Ephesians 5, 1 through 5. Read it. Ephesians 5, 1 through 5. We're to walk as children of love. And when we do, there's no foolishness involved in it. 
There's no blame game. There's no suspicion. There's no irritation. There's no condemnation. There's just the purity of the word of God towards those of us that he deeply loves and wants to close all the distance, the breaches of the enemy and the distance and oh, how he fights it. God gives the purity of his word, him himself, he gives it to a messenger, to that same one to give to others and the enemy does not want it. He doesn't want us functioning in the purity of an image about who we are in Christ. That's why he tries to get irritation to come in and suspicion to come in and then false counsel to come in to our experience. Again, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies, far above all principality and power. Do you see what the counsel of God is giving to us? And how sacred it is that when he gives it, he's given it so that you and I can rule in a proper image with Christ and then we're far above all principality and power. All of it. And dominion and not being dominated by anything else. Not being dominated by irritation. Not being dominated by suspicion or condemnation or thoughts that don't have to do with him. All because something was allowed to come in that should have never come in. Distance. Again, the enemy will use anything he can to cause that, to bring it about. The word of God is very sacred. And we need to know, in Ephesians 5.21, we need to submit to one another in the reverence of Christ in one another. And there's no foolishness involved there. That's to subtract. And it can come from the most dear loving people that, we, that could ever be, could happen to any of us. And it's not that God doesn't love them or love us. And it's not that they don't love God and that we don't love God. It's just that, that the intensity of what's being brought out, which will cause the distance and separation. You see, when the enemy can bring in irritation and suspicion toward another believer, all that is is distance. But the distance is created in the one first because of the distraction that would take away the intensity of concentration and discipline for the Word of God. And that's why we need to be so prepared because it'll keep out all of that and put everything in its right place. You see, the only, the only time we operate in, in our right place is in His presence. And can sin or foolishness be there? Can't be. It can't be. Now, we can only learn sin in God's presence. Now, the difference between learning sin in God's presence and by falling into it is a very, very great distance. Very great. Now, you and I can, and we have, we all do, we all fail. Thank, we all fail. But thank God for forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9. We all fail. We all fail. And we feel that sin, particular sin, very deeply, don't we? We all can say that. We felt the distance and depravity and terror of certain sins that have been allowed that we have submitted to in our lives. And because, because we actually are the ones that commit, committed that, that's a reality, isn't it? Haven't we all felt that? But this never gives 
you and I, God's sense of what sin is. Never does. Because it's not based upon sin. See, understanding sin is not based upon how we feel about it. It's not. The cross of Christ is the measure of sin in the sight of God. It's the only way it can be measured. Whether it's a huge sin or a small sin, as you and I would speak in our humanity. That is the distance in which all sin is from him. And in that distance, thank God for us, based upon the cross, it is removed and atoned for, reconciled. And only there, in the presence of God, the only way we function properly is based upon the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. Only there do you and I and can you and I personally measure sin, listen to this, as it pains, see pain? As it pains my conscience. As it pains my conscience. And that's what sin does. It pains my conscience. And you know what it does in us? It deforms who we are and who we think we are in the sight of God and man. But is it a proper form and a proper image about who we are in Christ? And so what, what happens is this. We make one sin to be greater than another. Again, listen, for all of us, and this is counsel for every one of us. I got it first this morning. In Proverbs 24 and verse 9, the thought of foolishness is sin. We don't think so. We may think it's okay for certain people to do it because we love them deeply and we know that God loves them and they love God and we may think it's okay. It's not okay. It never is. It causes distance. It causes occupation with the flesh and knowing one another after the flesh in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. But no, all things are new. We have this brand new image. In the sight of God and in the sight of man, it deforms me. You see, the son, when he sinned, the prodigal, when he left the father's house, and on his way back, his thought was of himself and how he was deformed in the sight of his father. But was that the father's measure and was that the father's sight? Is it God's sight of us? Or is the cross that finished the work, is that God's sight of us and given us a brand new image? And he had to take off experientially the rags that were causing the deformity because it was based upon the prodigal's thoughts and not the father's. We need to think clearly about each other. Who we are in Christ, and there's no foolishness, there's no distance, there's no deformity in that. And that's what Ephesians 5, verse 21 is bringing out. You see, that does away with all the blame game. That does away with all the comparison. You know, when the enemy can cause distance between Christians, you know what, you know what that's based upon? I'll read it. As God gave it to me this morning. And I'll read it here, and, and we can see it in Proverbs, the 10th chapter. And here is Proverbs 10. We'll see these. In, in the scriptures. But before I go there, I want to read this. And I might not even get to there, but in, first I want to read in 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. In 2 Corinthians 10, 
and I want you to follow it through, and you can follow it through to where we get to verse 12. Now, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12 says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number, be associated with the number, or co- compare ourselves. Compare ourselves. Uh, geez, you know, the way that that person acted, I, there was no fault about what was happening and the way that that person acted. I don't understand that. You don't? I'm going to tell you why. Was there any irritation? Was there any suspicion involved in it? That was the measure, of, it could only be the measure of our thoughts and not God's thought. To do away with a message. And possibly, even in that sense, to do away with the messenger. Because I will evaluate the messenger by my thoughts and not the message that's coming through him. And this is very clear in the scriptures. And this is also very, very precise. And this is true about all of us. No one is above anybody and no one is below anybody in the body of Christ. We're all equal. But we don't all occupy the same place in the local assembly. We don't. We need to keep foolishness out because that's distance. That's a distraction from the very mind of Christ, which is very pure. Philippians 4, 8... Whatsoever is true, honest, just, pure, pure, lovely, of good report, if there be any virtue, and there is, if there be any praise, and there is, think on these things. That's our thought life. That's what it's to be, to have the mind of Christ towards each other at all times. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16, in Philippians 2 and verse 5, so that we can function in the purity of that mind in us as individuals, in Philippians 4 and verse 8. We don't dare make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. What would be one that would commend themselves? Well, I didn't, I, I didn't like the way this person acted. And that's our business, right? <laughs> we don't have enough business with ourselves, right? That's why we always teach if you have an issue or you even think you have an issue, you go to God first. And then you go to the person. Because if it's not dealt with, the anger that's not of God, that's of sin, turns inward. You become bitter, and that bitterness causes distance from you receiving in the place where God has called you to receive his word through the one he's chosen to do so. And it's his choice. We always have to remember that. Doesn't mean we're not going to fail each other. But he's chosen us in John 15 and verse 16. We don't choose. And even in that sense, you do not choose, you don't and I don't choose who's going to be our pastor teachers. God does. Christ does. That's very clear in Ephesians 4, 8 to 11. And the enemy doesn't like it. I really don't care what he doesn't like. Expressed anywhere or through anyone. So we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. There's no wisdom. And if there's no wisdom, where does wisdom flow through? God who is love. There's no love involved. 
There's no suspicion in love. And where it flows through grace, there's no irritation. None. You see how important it is to be prepared when we come to hear the word of God and how sacred it truly is. How intensely sacred and true that it is. But they measuring themselves by themselves, their own interpretation of the word of God based upon their thoughts, and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure. You hear that? Measure. The only way we can measure sin and even who we are in the love of God is in the presence of God. The only way. Because it's God's sense of what sin is. It's God's sense. And that's why the cross of Christ is the measure of sin in the sight of God. Whatever. No matter how small it is or how great it is, that is the distance, that sin, in which all sin is from him, keeps us from him, causes the distance. And in that distance, thank God, this is where we can confess in 1 John 1, 9, our sin, because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is the distance that is removed and atoned for. And what do we mean by that? Here are the scriptures again, and I'll read here as we begin to close this this morning. Do you see the sense of where, how we're receiving this morning? Do we see that? The flow of the word? How it's flowing? Okay. How beautifully it is? Without interruption? Without distraction? Which will keep out irritation and suspicion and just keep us receiving the purity of Christ in us as individuals in him and honoring one another? instead of being suspicious and irritated and then comparing, measuring others by our own thoughts and they become more important or more pure than others? Does that make any sense? And thinking that now I have to protect? You know who does the protecting? It's God. He does the protecting. I'm going to make that crystal clear. He does the protecting. He does the controlling. He doesn't need us getting in the way. Doesn't. And his love will deal with us and he will deal with us sharply. That's why Hebrews 4 verse 12 says the word of, of the Lord is the word of Christ, the word that Christ said is living and powerful and sharper. And it cuts certain areas where things we don't even realize in ignorance have attached themselves to us. Don't even realize it until it's been brought out, until there's a separating, sanctifying process through learning grace, through humility. And then we have proper knowledge and measuring and understanding and wisdom. You see, this is it. This is it this morning. This is the way it should always be when we gather together as the local assembly to receive the word of God without distraction. And we protect, don't we? And in this way, we protect each other and protect those that we love and protect the innocent in a very beautiful, comforting way. Very beautiful. So as we, again, wrap this up at 8.44 a.m. this morning, here we are, 
in Colossians chapter 2. You can read it. Follow Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. And look what it says. And I'll read this. This is uh, Colossians 2 and verse 1. This is for any leader who is attached to Christ, thinking with his thoughts and his love towards those that are his. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you. And there was a conflict. There was conflicts going on even yesterday. Great conflict. A great conflict. And I'm just being honest. It was against the word of God. And to be against those that would receive it. There was a conflict. And that's the enemy. And he, will he use the innocence? Can he use anyone? Can he use anyone that has a sin nature? Even born with a sin nature in Psalm 58 and verse 3. Can he even use them? Even apart from their ignorance and innocence? Of course he can and he did. And he does. He does. Doesn't mean we don't love. We protect them. What great conflict I have for you and for them that are Laodicea, that are at Laodicea. What conflict he had through the Holy Spirit for the word. For that, those believers in Revelations 3, 14 to 22, that made more, were making more of their own opinions and their own thoughts, and even using the blessings of God to cause them to, to cause that distance between them and Christ. That's a conflict. And it was intense. And I just want to be honest. It was very intense yesterday. There was an intensity in that conflict. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, these messages that God gives us go out to all kinds of people. And you, you and I may think, oh, we're just one little old local assembly. I got news for you. Those messages that God has, they go out to a lot of different people because it's his message. It is. It's very pure you see, that their hearts might be comforted. <laughs> and even in chastisement, there's comfort. And even in the separating process, there's comfort. And even God dealing with things that we don't want him to deal with, there's still intense conviction and comfort involved in that. Their hearts might be comforted. Listen, being knit together in love, and you won't be. The enemy will try everything he can for that love to stop flowing between individuals in a local assembly. He will cause distance, distraction, to cause irritation and suspicion. It's very serious. It's not a light thing. Sin is not light in God's presence. Not one. A billion trillion, quadrillion sins is as evil as one sin in his presence. Because <laughs> only he can measure it, and he did by the horror and terror that his son experienced in our place about it so that he could give us fulfilled love without any wrath, justice being fulfilled. And this brings out propitiation, substitution, and reconciliation and keeps us on a solid foundation as we're passing through in the midst of prophecy right before our eyes is being fulfilled. That their hearts, their minds, and their emotions might be comforted, being knit together, being a one, without irritation and suspicion and false anger of the flesh. 
and unto all the riches of the full assurance. See, Christ is trying to fully assure us of his love. And you think the enemy wants that? You think he wants that? You don't think he can use anything? I don't think, yes, he can and he will. Even those that we highly love and respect, he'll do it in a heartbeat. The full assurance of understanding through the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This I say, lest any man should beguile you, bewitch you. And could that be another believer? Well, you remember what Paul said in Galatians 3.1? He was talking to the, to the church at Galatia and he was speaking to individuals, by the way. You see, God speaks individually to us through his word. That's what makes it so important to come and hear it on a consistent basis. That will keep out private plans, private associations. It'll keep it all out. It'll keep you from the distance of not functioning fully in a local assembly. And the enemy will use anything to do that. Even the good things that you think are good and God's blessing you with. If they keep you from him, please understand it's not right. But each thing has its place in his presence. And only in his presence can we determine what sin is and what him loving us is. Now, in Galatians 3, in verse 1, this is what it says. When it says that about this here, we saw it here, who will beguile you in, in Colossians 2 and verse 4. To beguile you from the experience of being knit together in his love with each other. And no distance in between. Isn't that interesting? And how would he do that? This is how he'll do it. And he will use anything and anybody and any, anything. Galatians 3 and verse 1, oh foolish Galatians, what's a fool? He determines who he is and privately even interprets the word in 2 Peter 1 and verse 20 and determines it based upon his thinking. Can you imagine taking the word of God and making it fit thoughts that aren't from God? And that's Proverbs 18, 1 and 2. That's why in Proverbs 24 and 21, you don't meddle with them that are given to a change. And that change can be experiential, can never be positionally. But where sin comes in and rules and reigns, it rules and reigns above love. O foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Who cast a spell on you? Tomorrow and the rest of it, we'll get into these words in a very precise way. Who bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes, see eyes here? Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth crucified among you. This one I only learned. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by the works of the flesh, by working the flesh in relationship with each other in the body of Christ? Did you do that? Or by the hearing of faith dependence? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being completed now? By the flesh? Have you suffered so many things, so many pains, suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministered to you the Spirit and worked miracles among you, does he do it by the working of the law, by the hearing of faith? Faith dependence. Faith dependence. It is only there 
the cross, where I can determine what sin is and what love is in me as an individual. Because what, wait, what I do with my own thoughts and I do with my thoughts about others is I personally measure sin as it pains my conscience and deforms me in the sight of God men, as we said. And hence, one sin is greater to me than another. Eh, that's not so bad. I can speed bump that one. God never, listen, one, the one little sin was enough for Christ ha- having to be tortured and be put in terror on the cross as becoming the sin sacrifice for sin in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He didn't become sin. He became the, the pure son of God in the purity of his impeccable humanity without spot. Numbers 19 and verse 2 in Exodus 12, 1 to 13. Without a single spot, sin was put on him and be, he became the sin sacrifice. Listen, he's the measure of it. The terror the horror, the pain, and the suffering of the precious Son of God, our precious Savior, is the measure of even the simplest, smallest little sin. The thought of foolishness is sin. Proverbs 24 and verse 9. It deforms me. And so one sin becomes greater than the other. And the sin that I commit is therefore necessarily the one I feel most about because it's my sense, it's my measure according to the state or the condition of my conscience. But still, that can't determine it. I have a cleansed conscience in all reality in Hebrews 10, 1 and 2 in my position in Christ. But is it experientially cleansed? Can it be when I try to measure sin apart from the cross? That's why, and people don't, don't understand it, and thank God we do, and the only reason we do is it's the pure, unadulterated grace of God, the Holy Spirit taking the things of Christ and showing them unto us, never using natural intellect. That's why he said in Matthew 10 and verse 38, except you take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciplined learner. You will never be my disciplined learner. Some think that's works. They'll teach that in legalism. You have to do something. It's taking up the finished work cross of Jesus Christ that he was teaching. Had nothing to do with fleshly, carnal, wicked comparison works. Because the Pharisees, all they did was compare themselves. They even compared themselves to Christ and came out on top of him. God and humanity. Think of that foolish, evil terror of that. And the complete nonsense. So as we wrap it up this morning here, at 8.55 a.m. this morning, we can see this, that it is not the apprehension of my own conscience that brings in the reality of God's claims. No, it's not. All that measures, again, is departure from his will. It's departure from his will, Christ who fulfilled it, Psalm 47 and 8, John 4, verse 33, and John 19, 30, he finished the work. And it's in subjection or a lack of submission to his word in James 4 and verse 6. That's what it is. And that, when it's not submission to his will, and it's not submission to his word, it's called sin, and sin is lawlessness. That's Romans 8.1. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ, period. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the what? The law of sin and death. You see that? It's the law of sin and death. It's not just the Ten Commandments in Exodus 23 to 17 and those 613 statutes and ordinances that are combined in it. And if you offend in one point, you're guilty of all in James 2.10. Try and measure it. Only God the Father and God the Son measured sin and the unbelievable distance that it created that no one could fix or, or close that gap as we brought out and we will this week or that breach where the enemy came in. Boy, did he ever. Boy, did he ever. Thank God, greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world in 1 John 4, 4. So sin is lawlessness. And that lawlessness begin, is, and, and then when we see sin, apart from the cross, or apart from his will and his word, our own sensibility is shocked at the moral and unbelievable deformities that we can fall in. Do you ever fall in sin and think, oh my God, it's so evil. Oh my God, it's so evil. But even that, in our own estimation, is only viewing sin as it affects ourselves. Not how it affected God, because we can't measure it. And there's where the comparing comes in. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. See the subtlety of that? In Genesis 3 verse 1, the enemy's subtle. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, he's subtle. He's very subtle the way he does things, the way he gets in between. The way he gets into one believer and tries to get in between others. It's very evil, very evil. And this is not the true measure of sin. You and I must see how it is viewed by God. We must see. That's John 3, verse 30. He must increase our proper seeing, our proper thought life. But I must decrease in my own interpretation of it based upon my own sins and how I feel about what it's done to me. What was God's view of it? And what did it do to his son? God, only the son could measure it, the father, the depth of it. But only that love can be measured in his presence, the height of what that death brought us to in the love, life, and proper image about who we are in Christ, who we are in Christ. I can never see it. And this is only, I can only learn sin when the finished work Reality of the cross is, is learned experientially. And, but, and I can never see sin. But what it is, there, where God dealt with it in his presence. And does he see me now in my sin? In, in Romans 7, 20. 17 and 20. Romans 7. So it is no more I that do it. Thank you, God. It's no longer my estimation in my sin and how it affected me. That is not God's measure of me. How far short is that of his love for us? How far short? He never, as we close this morning, removes his eye from the righteous in Job 36 and verse 7. And Father, thank you for the word this morning. 
Thank you for the purity of it. Thank you for the intensity of it. Thank you for the in- intricacy of it and how piercing it is in your love for us to keep out that distance, that distraction that would cause distance and distraction for me as an individual and then the enemy would use it to cause it to be between another believer. Father, thank you so much for your love. The depth of your love. Your love went so deep. In Psalm 42, verse 7, that was said of Christ on Calvary, the deep called unto the deep, the depth of this sin that was immeasurable could only be met by the measure of the depth and height of your love. All your waves and your billows went over me, and that's what happened. All of our sins, the sins of only those that believe in him, were dealt with, and they went over him. And Father, thank you for your deep love for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.